Please be seated. I do invite you to turn with me your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of 2 Peter. We are continuing our study of these letters, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, Lord willing, Jude. After taking a couple of weeks off for Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and as I, I mentioned then and I do now, I don't really see this as a divergence of our series. Our series has been looking for hope, hope to endure trying times, how to live faithfully when trials and difficulties and hardships come upon us. And so taking a couple of weeks to be in Luke, we actually enforced that idea because Peter says the place to look for hope is in Jesus Christ, is in his life, is in his death, and in, is in his resurrection. And so we really are continuing our series of looking for hope by continually looking to our Savior. Peter's made this clear and clear uh, over and over again. He, he did this really well in 1 Peter, and he continues to do so in this passage. And we'll see it even clearer in this passage. He directly appoints to Christ. And he says, he is the reason you can trust this message. And so this morning, I encourage each one of us to look to Christ. Look to Christ as our living hope and as an our example. With that in mind, I do now invite you to follow along with me. As I read for us the word of God, 2 Peter chapter 1, I'll begin in verse 12, and I will read through verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow clever, cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very, born, this vo very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And it is by his power and strength through the Holy Spirit this day that we will hear this and apply it to our lives. And so would you please go with me as we go to the Lord and ask him to do that very thing. Dear Heavenly Father, I do ask this morning, through the power of your Holy Spirit, your word has gone forth. Open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we might receive its truths. In some ways, we will be talking about the simplicity of the gospel this morning. Lord, may the simplicity of the gospel be that everyone here, from the youngest to the oldest, can know their hope in you. They can cling to you as their source of salvation, their source of rest and strength and encouragement. And at the same time, Lord, may we never grow weary, may we never grow tired of plumbing the depths of this beautiful truth called the gospel. Be with us now, O Lord, in this time. 
as we unpack your word. I pray all of these things in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. There's something to be said about the kind of wisdom that can only be obtained through experience. It's easier, I believe we would say, to trust someone that has been through certain situations, especially if they handled it well. Um, I think of the book of Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books of the Bible. Um, I think of the wisdom of the preacher. He notes on several occasions that if it could have been experienced, if it could have been obtained, if you can have it from a worldly standpoint, he had it. Um, chapter 2 comes to mind, which is this autobiographical sketching. He notes in a few places, um, I had the best of self-indulgence. I had the best of living wisely. I had the best of toil and work. And yet his conclusion is the same as is the refrain all throughout that book. I looked at what I accomplished, what I had, what I had done, all I had achieved, all I had bought. And it's vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I cannot say with certainty, but I really hope and pray that uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is written by a broken Solomon at the end of his life. And I believe that there's evidence for that to be the case. The wisest man who had it all asked of him and it was given to him. I, I really want this to be from him because he did experience all things. And the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes comes to the conclusion it is all pointless without God. That's a message that we can believe and we can trust because he lived through it. We need to look for reliable sources. I think that um, we get that in our passage today. I believe that Peter is a reliable source for this particular message. His life is short. He tells us that very clearly here. He does not have long left. We're talking somewhere around three or so years, depending on the dating of this book and of his death. And so what he delivers, he delivers out of the wisdom of his life. These last few chapters of Second Peter read as the closing remarks of this man who walked with God. And he could tell many things. There was many options for stories, for examples, for lessons. But what does he say? In, in our passage in particular, he says two things. One, remember the simple truth of the gospel. Closing remarks, some of the last words of this great man. Remember the simple truths of the gospel. And then two, trust in that truth. Remember the truth of the gospel and trust in the truth of that message. These are the two sections that we're going to look at in our text today. Really trying to apply them to our life as he did for the church. And I will, will tell you even now... While this was a needed message for them at that time, it's all the more a message needed for us this morning. So would you please follow along with me um, as we unpack this. Remember the simple truths of the gospel. If you look just before this passage, uh, the section um, preceding this, it's been a few weeks since we've been there. Peter gives a list of characteristics. If you remember, he's calling us to godly living. He's calling us to display these things in our lives. Um, faith, virtue, uh, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Should sound similar to you. It's very similar to the list of the fruit of the Spirit. 
And so Peter is saying, display these things in your life, have these things in your life, pursue these things. And then he goes on to say, be diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will not fail. Verse 11, in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Peter is effectively saying, and I want to be careful again as I did then, um, he's not saying, do these things and you will be saved. He is not saying, this is the list of characters, of qualities, of traits you need to do to be right with God. No, Peter is saying, if you are right with God, you will have these things growing in your life. It's a necessary consequence of our relationship with God. And as we see them, they give us assurance. As we see them, they give us what we need to better live for God and to die unto sin. As we see them, we can trust the work of the Holy Spirit and be encouraged. And so that's the preface to our passage because Peter is going to directly reference that message, the message he gave and we heard a few weeks ago, as he begins our text. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Peter's desire for these churches, the churches in Asia Minor, is that they would have a lasting reminder of these qualities and that they would seek to live them out in their lives. He knew their struggles. He knew their weaknesses. And so he wanted to make sure that they knew without a shadow of a doubt where they could find assurance. And let me just pause to say that even to this day, one of the greatest needs for most individual Christians I interact with and in counsel is a need for assurance. Does God really love me? Could he really save a sinner like me? Will he really see me through and to the end? These are questions I get all the time. And so I was blessed this weekend to attend Presbytery and see four men examined uh, for various ministerial roles. It was asked of them again and again because it is vital, whether it's the chaplaincy, whether it's church planting, whether it's serving as an intern, whether it's just being a member of the church, it is vital that we understand our assurance comes from who God is and what he has done, and we can have it. And one of the ways we know we can have it, you can go to 1 John, one of the best books on assurance of salvation, is when we see these things spring up in our lives. And so Peter is, is saying again, he's repeating himself. And that in and of itself is worthy of a pause and of noting. Paper was expensive and he only had so much space to write. The fact that Peter repeats himself here means he is bolding and highlighting and changing the font size and putting arrows in the margins. All the, the things we would do nowadays saying, look at this. You need to hear me. It's worth me saying twice. Pursue these things in your life. And I, I say that, and, and the temptation here is to, um, to speculate that he's doing this out of anger. That he's, he's said it to them once, and they're not doing it, and so he says it again with a little more emphasis. Um, kind of like we do sometimes, those who are parents or maybe in a teaching situation. You know, you tell your class turn to page this and do this assignment and they're not listening and so you repeat yourself with a little more oomph 
I said, turn to page 45 and begin reading the next assignment. That's not what Peter's doing here. Don't, don't read into that, that he's angry at the church because they're failing. Um, we know that because he becomes apologetic. You know them, you know these truths, and are established in them that you have. And so he's affirming them. He's saying, I see this in your life. I see you practicing. I know you're listening to me. Just don't forget to keep doing it. He cares for them. He's grateful for their lives, for their faith. And remember the context that we find ourselves in. This is vitally important. These are churches in Asia Minor that have been dispersed for their faith. We've not made it to the destruction of the temple yet, but we're in those early years. Um, Right now, we're somewhere around 64, 65, maybe 66 AD. There's turmoil. There's chaos. People are being cast out of their homes. They're being scattered even now. Some of them are even dying. If you remember in 1 Peter, some are dying for their faith. And so this is the context Peter's writing in. And he's saying, keep it up. Keep going. Keep enduring. Keep pursuing God. Keep pursuing godly characteristics. And light of the fact that some of you are making the ultimate sacrifice for this. He's writing to them as a friend. He's writing to them to say, keep going. And Peter, he could do this on his own. He could do this based on his own authority. But he adds a personal touch. And I I appreciate this touch that Peter adds here. He writes it as someone who's facing it too. He writes it not as someone who is just making a a plea from experience or, or from an academic perspective. He's doing it as someone who also is dying. If you can... Take that um, in in the right ways. Not not because of his health, but he knows that he soon will face death, death by crucifixion. He says that, I think it is right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of a minder. Since I know the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure... You may be able at any time to recall these things. Shortly before his death, tradition states that um, Peter was likely um, martyred around 67 AD. And if you consider Peter's life and his ministry, you realize there's a lot that he could have said. But he continues with this simple message. Trust in the Lord your God by faith and you will be saved. Believe in him. Follow his word, and the fruit of that will be displayed in your life. By doing so, you will have hope and faith to live faithfully during trying times. That's really a summary of First and Second Peter right there. Peter was told by Christ, John 21, 18 and 19, that he would die the same way that Christ died. Peter knew that his time was coming. He knew that the end was near Much like the people he was writing to, he doesn't write as one ignorant. He does not write as one who um, will be blessed with a a long lifespan and will escape the conflict. He writes as someone who's in it. Because of this, he's all the more eager. He's all the more eager to make the gospel plain and to promote it in their lives. And he says again and again, just remember these simple things. These few things. Remember this one message. And here's the blessing. 
He, he says there, I seek to, to write to you in such a way that after I'm gone, you will not be able to forget this. Well, Peter wasn't just writing a letter. By the providence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter was writing one of the letters, one of the divine letters from God. His word is part of the canon, is part of the biblical account. And so this would have been read at the churches in Asia Minor, and then it would have been shared to the other churches. It would have been passed along. And um, as we go through church history, around 350, we get all 66 books collected. But even at the time of this writing, they're gathering them together. And the churches would be able to come back to his writing. They would be able to relate to it again. And how much more powerful was it after his death? How much more impactful did this, um, was this for the church when you could read it and go, and he did die. He's telling us to be faithful unto the end, and he was. He's telling us to last and persevere and be of strength and be of courage, and he did. And even how much more impactful is that when we note that it is Peter who's saying this and doing this. The one who doubted God. The one who was always running his mouth in the Gospels. The one who was always quick to answer and slow to think. That's the one who's telling us this message. I don't know about you, but I take great encouragement that Peter's the one telling me this. And let me just say, before we move to our second point, there's a blessing in this There is no need to preach a new message today. There is no need for me to change the gospel to better apply it to your lives today. I'm not that creative, and praise God, I'm not allowed to do it. You need to hear what has been said. You need to believe what has been taught. You need to apply to your life what the Bible has already said is important for your life. Early on in my ministry, and I I talked about this in um, the Sunday school class this morning on preaching. I didn't grow up in a reformed setting, and each week I I was convicted that I had to create a sermon. One that is entertaining and engaging and and, um, socially applicable and and matched uh, the, the situation and lots of humor involved. And that was exhausting. It was utterly exhausting each week to be funny and entertaining and engaging and use a Bible verse to to teach a a positive message. It wasn't until much later in my life when a professor in college introduced to me the scriptures in a new way. And by that, I mean he told me to read them. A seminary professor or a college professor at, at Mississippi State He said, we're going to read Romans 8, 9, and 10. That's the next lesson in class. We're not going to comment on it. We're not going to think about it. You're just going to read it word for word. We did. We took a three-hour class, and we read Romans 8, 9, and 10 straight through. And then after that, he said, now let's apply it to our lives. And it was, oh, my goodness. That's right. Oh, this is real. I don't need something else. Just tell people this. This is good stuff. The simplicity of the gospel, one of the the core truths that we need to understand is this is enough. This is what you need. And that's what Peter was saying. You don't need anything else. You just simply need to believe and trust in him by faith. Apply these words to your life and it will change your life. That's the the first half of his message. And the second half really is um, further evidence on why you should do this. Verses 16 to 18 We're told to trust in the truth of this message. 
And this is important. And again, I, I mentioned this this morning in Sunday school. We shouldn't blindly just listen to someone and believe them because they say it. You know, if I told you this morning to turn to 2 Peter 6 and you just smile and nod at me, we've got a problem. If you don't get that, flip over a few pages. You should believe what I say because it's the Word of God. You should believe what I say because it says it in the Word of God. You should listen to Peter, not just me, but Peter, because what he is saying fits within the Word of God. And so while he's an apostle and while he's given a divine role, we should trust him because it is confirmed in the Scriptures. And so Peter, knowing that, uses evidence to confirm what he's saying. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. We were eyewitnesses to this majesty. Many people throughout the years, and if you get into Bible scholarship and, and um, critical scholarship, you'll find that many people are convinced that it was written after the fact. It was written by Jews. They're called revisionists who are changing the message to fit uh, their narrative. They want to make Jesus look great. And so they made it look like he was a superhero. Peter rejects this notion. He rejects it very clearly and very loudly. He's saying this is not cleverly devised myths. And think about that. I really, really con contemplate that. How is Peter portrayed in the Bible? If, if you're writing an autobiography and want to paint yourself in the best light, wouldn't you scrub the sections that didn't make you look that clean? Even worse, you know, if you say, well, maybe not Peter, but the Jews, how are they portrayed? Like, are, if you're a revisionist and you're trying to write this to make Jesus a hero and the Jews the people of God, wouldn't you leave out the parts where they tried to kill him? Wouldn't you leave out basically the entirety of the Old Testament where they just rebelled over and over and over again and fell into sin over and over and over again due to their disobedience? I mean, maybe you could tell me you're, you're like super honest and I'm like, okay, that's fine. Most of you don't know that I was extremely hateful in my eighth grade year. I had a very negative attitude and uh, my eighth grade English teacher, Mrs. Starnes, to this day, she laughs when she sees me because I thought she was wrong. And I told her, it's not very smart for, your, for an eighth grader to be telling an educated adult that they're wrong. That's not in my autobiography. I guess it's recorded now, but like you, don't, you don't put in the parts you don't want read. And so I, I reject, as Peter rejects this notion that, that this has been cleverly devised, that this has been a, a curated list of teachings that uh, give us the best message and the best light possible. What it gives us is the truth. And in fact, I believe we can know it's the truth because it doesn't paint the best picture. Because it does paint some of the heroes of the faith as failures. It paints them as ones who have fallen and missed the mark. And the greatest figures in the Bible go to the hall of faith in Hebrews. List their sins. This would have been easy for us to look at this and, and, and kind of come to that conclusion and some of the, the scholars that do this, they do it with history on their side. But also know what Peter's saying. We saw it happen. You have eyewitnesses to what took place telling you they were eyewitnesses. And you have eyewitnesses of eyewitnesses throughout the Bible account telling you. We saw what happened. We know what happened. We're telling you the truth. 
We have the early church telling you, we know what happened. We're telling you the truth. Quite plainly, this is real. This is the word of God. It is the, the word of the God. It is the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is true in what it says. It is true in what it teaches. It's true in what it calls us to do. Again, on this side of history, we can look at this and say, we know that. Because what's Peter saying? I will soon die. What do we know from historical accounts? Peter soon died. Evidence. And you can do that again and again. You can, you can read through that. You can look at the, the various manuscripts. Thousands upon thousands of manuscripts found. Not one yet to, that contradicts the word of God. It actually all affirms it. And if, any, if that was not enough, Peter lifts up one particular moment and one, one scene, one um, piece of evidence that he himself was an eyewitness to, to, to kind of um, be a capstone for this message, to trust the word of God, to, to live it out, the simple message. Peter points to the transfiguration. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic God, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. Matthew 16, Mark chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, 2 Peter chapter 1. All four record this event. And they record it as true historical fact. This is significant in what it's teaching. This, this moment deserves a sermon on its own, but it's reminiscent of Moses. When Moses goes up to the mountain, he's with God. He's in God's presence. Um, he's getting the Ten Commandments. He comes down. He spent so much time with God. The radiance of God is upon his face. The people are in a panic. That's too much holiness for us. Cover your face. We can't stand it. Jesus goes up on the mountain. Jesus is transfigured. The radiance of God shines around him. It's bright as the, shine, the shining sun. Prophets appear. Peter, James, and John are eyewitnesses to what's taking place. This is my beloved son. One of the clearest depictions of the divinity of Christ. With whom I am well pleased. Peter couldn't make that up if he tried. We're told, I mean, here, here's another example of why we know this has to be true. And Peter's not just making this up. If you go, I, I believe it's Mark's gospel that tells this. You, you get Jesus transfigured, you get the prophets appear. Peter is just dumbfounded. And the only thing he can think of is, Jesus, should we pitch tents? Like he, he's, he's, Jesus has been declared God. Heaven is speaking Prophets are arriving, and Peter's first response is, let's throw the tents up. Because he says in Mark's account, he doesn't know what he's saying. You don't write that if you're trying to portray yourself as the hero of the story. You don't make yourself foolish in the presence of the holiness of God if you're trying to paint a picture that makes you the hero. You do it, you write it, you record it if it's the truth. And you're more convicted and convinced by the truth than you are making yourself look good. Peter references something here. He didn't even have to reference. 
He could have used anything else. He, he has so many stories. He has so many accounts. I mean, even him sinking with him walking on the water doesn't sound as bad as this one. He picked one that made himself look foolish. But what is he saying in that? This is real. It really happened. Look to the evidence. Listen to what I'm saying. Ask other eyewitnesses. When he says this took place, you've got James and John. Go talk to James and John. They heard it too. They saw it too. I'm not making this up. And so Peter really uses his life, he really uses his ministry as this, this concrete marker to tell people the gospel is true. The gospel is real. Believe it and live it out in your lives. We saw it take place. Brothers and sisters, this morning there is great simplicity in the gospel. Man, through Adam, fell into a state of sin. We today constantly sin against our God breaking our covenant with Him. We deserve death for this violation. But the grace of God was shown to us in this. While we were yet still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Whoever trusts in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins will be saved. We deserve death, and yet we've been offered life. Life in Christ. Don't believe it because I said it. Believe it because He did. Trust the word of God this day, and you too will be saved. Live it out in your life. It will transform your life. It will transform your family. It will transform your work. It will give you joy and peace and comfort. That doesn't take away pain and hardship. But what it does, it allows you to have peace through those times and through those seasons. And that's what Peter has been saying again and again on his Effectively, on his deathbed, in his final words, he's saying, trust this message. And here we are 2,000 years later, simply repeating what Peter said. Trust this message. Live it out. Believe it. Praise God for faithful men like Peter who recorded these truths for us that we might hear them and believe. Praise God that he continues to draw people unto himself. And we get to be a part of this wonderful plan. The gospel is simple in that we mean from the youngest to the oldest here today can hear this message and respond in faith. And yet it is so profound that we will spend the rest of our lives and Lord willing all of eternity not plumbing the depths. I conclude with just the thoughts of one of my favorite songs. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. All of eternity, continually studying, understanding, and unpacking the beauty and the depth of our Savior Jesus Christ. Praise God for that simple truth. Let us pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, what a joy it is this day to proclaim the truth of this message. Father, I thank you that you call me as your servant to be your mouthpiece. I pray... Oh, Lord, that everything I've said this day is in accord with your word, that it's been your truth, your message. If it's not, if it's been of me, or if I've said anything that's not true, take it, take it from their ears. Wipe it away, O oh Lord, because we don't need me, we need you. We need your truth, the hope of your gospel. We need it in our lives today. Father, I pray for this church. I pray for these people. Help them find rest and comfort in you. May we not forget 
these fruit in our lives. As we continue to walk with you, may we cultivate them and seek to grow them, that you may be glorified, and that we may live more and more unto holiness and less and less unto the sin of this world. I pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.